Welcome everybody to our monthly third Wednesday call with the Peace Alliance National Department of Peacebuilding campaign. We are very pleased uh, to have a guest speaker tonight and I am going to yeah. turn this over to Nancy who's going to turn it over to the local Massachusetts people and offer introductions. Nancy, what would you like to say first? Well, uh, let me also just say housekeeping. We'd, we'd like people to no, no, self-monitor their noise in their room. But if we hear noise in your room, we will also mute you. So please mute yourself unless you're speaking as part of the program. Thank you. Okay, Nancy. Mm -hmm. um, well, I want to welcome everybody and I want to thank uh, Congressman McGovern for being on with us. Um, we just had our annual uh, Department of Peacebuilding Advocacy Days, which was virtual this year. And um, to me, this feels like an extension of that. It's really nice to connect with Congress and um, get, your, get your input on different things. Uh, we, also, here, so. uh, we also thank you for being a co-sponsor of the Department of Peacebuilding Bill 11 times now since uh, ever, ever since it was introduced in 2001. Uh, we really appreciate that. And we appreciate uh, your peace and justice work, your work on uh, gun violence prevention, voting rights, uh, the new uh, National Security Reforms and Accountability Act, which I think is brand new. Um, and particularly, uh, that touches my heart and some others on this call I know is your work with Tibet and uh, the uh, reciprocal access to Tibet Act and the Tibet Policy and Support Act. And um, I, I, I've been on some calls with the Tibetan community where you spoke and it was really nice to hear um, all of that. So I, I appreciate it. Okay. I want to thank um, our Massachusetts group uh, for being um, so strong in supporting Department of Peace Building since 2005. And um, I know that at their initial kickoff event, this, the Congressman McGovern was there. So I'm anxious to, to introduce Dave Dunn from the Massachusetts campaign, and he'll talk a little bit about that and introduce the Congressman more fully. So over to you, Dave. Okay, thanks, Nancy. Uh, so I, I'm honored to be on the call to introduce Congressman McGovern to uh, the Peace Alliance attendees. So I'll start with a little history. So, so uh, over 20 years ago, Pat Simon shared with me the Dennis Kucinich bill for a Department of Peace. And I was really happy to see that legislation in play and, and excited uh, that at that time, maybe it still does, it referenced the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that had been ushered in uh, under the chairmanship of Eleanor Roosevelt. <clears throat> In 2002, Pat and I went to the Unitarian Universalist General Assembly in Quebec, and we petitioned to have the Unitarian Church support the bill, which they did. And then, as you had said, Nancy, in 2005, Pat and I kicked off the Massachusetts campaign at the Unitarian Church in Concord, and, um, and Congressman McGovern was there and helped us kick off the Massachusetts campaign. And... Um, and he's been co-sponsoring the bill since it started and is still, and I, we really appreciate that effort. And um, so uh, I feel like, you know, throughout history, there are prominent leaders that have been trying to improve the conditions of, of, the, of the world and of the, the people of the world and uh, whether that's safety through peace or providing food for the hungry or supporting uh, mental health uh, and families of people in need, these leaders continue to go out on a limb for our well-being. And the the uh, Department of Peace, I think, started in 1798. Um, Benjamin Rush, a doctor who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, he submitted a plan of peace for the United States. And that, that document uh, is actually online um, for review. And I was really moved. I had read that in 2012, 
at the funeral of Senator George McGovern, not related, um, Congressman McGovern stated that it was always comforting to know that he was around reminding us that we can do better, making it seem possible that we could end all wars, eliminate hunger and poverty and create a world where all God's children are respected and loved and valued. So I'm proud that Congressman McGovern has continued that legacy and should be an inspiration for all of us. He's been fighting for causes to help the human condition all over the world and use the strength of the United States to make the world a better place for all humankind. Uh, he's provided substantial support and leadership to end world hunger and to restoring the balance of power between president and Congress. And um, so I trem I'm tremendously honored to introduce Congressman McGovern. Uh, Congressman, thank you very much for joining us uh, and support continuing to support the bill for United States Department of Peace. I appreciate it. Well, Dave, thank you for the uh, generous introduction. And Nancy, thank you. And Karen, thank you. And to everybody on this call, you all were on Hollywood Squares. Thank you uh, for, for being part of this. Um, you know, Dave um, mentioned George McGovern. We're not related, but my first job was working for George McGovern as a college intern uh, in the late 1970s. Um, and we became the closest of friends and um, I delivered the eulogy at his funeral uh, when he died. Um, and people would always come up to me and say, you know, I'm a big supporter of your dad's, I always have been. And I would say, well, thank you. Uh, my dad owns a liquor store in Worcester, Massachusetts. He went supporting him. They always looked a little bit stunned, but, um, but I, um, you know, one of the proudest moments of my life uh, was working for George McGovern. But uh, let me begin by, by praising each of you uh, individually and as a coalition. Uh, you are a remarkable example of what citizen activists can accomplish, especially during a pandemic. Um, this bill would never have existed without you. And the last time I looked, nearly 148 organizations had come together to endorse the bill from local grassroots groups to state and national organizations. Some of the groups are Amnesty International, the California Democratic Party, Lutheran Peace Fellowship, the National Organization for Women, Physicians for Social Responsibility, and Veterans for Peace. This is just a, a short highlight of the range of support that you have created in support of creating and establishing a cabinet level US Department of Peace Building. I know that your advocacy includes reaching out to many more groups and organizations and getting them to endorse um, and push for the bill, reaching out to labor unions and groups, reaching out to environmental organizations, continuing to expand the circle of support. Think, of, think what it would mean to establish a federal cabinet level department dedicated solely to peacemaking, dedicated to the, uh, uh, dedicated to and, and the study and promotion of domestic and international cultures of peace, dedicated to peace building initiatives that address the root causes of violence. A US department that works to advance measures to stabilize our society and our world, not by engaging in military operations, but by vigorously engaging in efforts that prevent violent conflict in the first place. Imagine what a refreshing change that would be. You know, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, identifies violence as a leading public health issue, one that we spend $300 billion on annually. Imagine the changes we might help begin if America's children were taught nonviolence practices and violence prevention. Imagine how much human potential could be nurtured and developed in our own citizens and around the world by helping to reduce conflict and reduce suffering. Imagine supporting and training our military with approaches that de-escalate conflict, reduce violence, and provide tools for peace building. You know, I believe it could be, it, I believe it could help save billions of dollars by reducing violence, conflict, migration, hunger, and suffering. All of which would open up spaces for individuals, communities, and nations to invest in making our world a better place economically, socially, and politically. 
Now, some might say that this is nothing more than a fantasy or an idealistic dream. But I can tell you that I've been to countries around the world where local and national organizations are building peace from the grassroots up. I just returned from Colombia, and there are peacemakers and peace builders everywhere, often working under terrible, terrible conditions and in the midst of, of, of violent conflict. And they're making a difference. Now, we should have a federal department that supports them fully. USAID, the State Department, our regional foundations all contribute valuable aid and support to these groups and networks around the world. But we can do so much more to build peace. We know how to, we know how to do it. We know individuals and organizations around the world who know how to do it. We know individuals and organizations right here in the United States who are engaged in peace building, reconciliation, bringing people together for the, for the common purpose and for the common good in building bridges between diverse communities. They deserve support, absolutely, yes. But they also deserve a national commitment to address the root causes of conflict and the prevention of violence. That is the movement that you are creating and that you are building and that you need to expand even further. That is the dream Congresswoman Barbara Lee is pursuing with her bill to create a department of peace building. And your commitment has many, 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 many ripple effects. Now, last month I introduced a bill that would dramatically reform how the president and Congress make decisions on, matter of, on matters of war and peace, the sale and export of US military weapons and armaments and declaring national emergencies. That bill, which is HR 5410, the National Security Reforms and Accountability Act is a bipartisan, bicameral bill. I'm very proud of that fact. But what excites me the most is being able to restore some balance between the executive branch and the Congress on these critical national security decisions. And in requiring Congress to live up to its constitutional responsibilities and do the necessary work before we send our uniformed men and women to war or sell weapons to another nation, making war against other countries, or even against its own people. So these are serious matters, uh, and too often they have been decided outside of public debate or notice, or almost casually. Now, President John F. Kennedy once said, mankind must put an end to war, or war will put an end to mankind. And the great Colombian novelist, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, is credited with saying, it is easier to start a war than to end it. Congress doesn't like to make tough decisions, let alone tough, take tough votes. But that's why you sent us to Washington, not to follow the easy path, but to search our own conscience, seek out expert opinions, listen to our constituents, and then debate and vote on the most difficult questions facing our nation and the world. So thank you for all your incredible work, your hard work, and thank you for your commitment. I hope uh, that moving forward, fewer of those debates are about waging war and more of them are, are, are about building peace. And so I, I, I just wanna thank you for all your work uh, uh, that you'll be doing in the months and years ahead. And please know that I wanna be somebody who will be wind at your back, but it's great to be with you. Let me just conclude by saying this, there's a lot of crazy stuff happening in Washington right now. Uh, a lot of stuff that can seem overwhelming and depressing. Uh, but uh, being on a call with um, the likes of all of you gives me a little bit of a, a lift. Uh, it's an inspiration because it reminds me that there are people who care and there are people who are willing to do the hard work to make a difference. And so um, I'm grateful to be with you. And uh, again, I am uh, grateful for all of your support. I yield back. Well, Congressman McGovern, thank you very much. That was uh, inspirational for us. And, and it was wonderful to hear that, that we're actually an inspiration to you as well. Uh, if you, do you have a few moments maybe for a question and answer? Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, I just wanted to, before that, before that, if Pat Simon wanted to say anything or have it lead off with a question um, okay. first or not. 
Well, see Paragon. Where is Paragon? She's she's on phone, so she's just okay. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, Pat, I needed I was muting everybody because we had a little bit of sound. Okay. Star yeah. six will unmute your phone, Pat, if you'd like to <clears throat> say something. So I know I know Pat has worked with your office yeah. um, to bring this about, and uh, we're really, really grateful for that. I'm grateful for her. <laughs> so are we. <laughs> well, uh, so Maybe until she comes on. Um, Pat, Pat's uh, not on a phone. She's on her laptop. And uh, Pat, if you click your microphone button, it will bring, it'll allow you to communicate with us. <clears throat> the, the mute microphone is a toggle switch. So if you press that, it should unmute you. I don't know about you. I can't wait till we get we, we start meeting in person again. Oh, definitely. We're all <laughs> so maybe, maybe until Pat gets on, yeah. I had a, I had a question relating to um, the bills uh, that passed for in support of Tibet were largely bipartisan, is my understanding. And um, how would we take the lessons from how those bills passed to um, to what we're doing with Department of Peace Building, which has not really been bipartisan so far. Yeah. Um, you know, well, I mean, the bottom line is that Tibet is a bipartisan issue because the Tibetan community and many of you, you know, have appealed to your representatives, whether Democrats or Republicans, and made the case why Tibetan human rights matters. Um, and so we've been able to you know, build a bipartisan coalition. You know, when I worked for George McGovern as a young intern, um, you know, I used to show up every day and look at his schedule. And every once in a while, I'd look at his schedule and it would say things like, they drink with, drinks with Barry Goldwater. And I'm, as I said to him, I'm like, why would you have drinks with Barry Goldwater? I mean, you know, he's like way out there. And McGovern would say to me, you know, look, I like Barry Goldwater. Um, he, he's a interesting man. He's a patriot. He loves his country. Um, I have fun when I have a drink with him. Now, he wants to like triple the military budget, which I think is insane. I want to cut the military budget and he thinks I'm insane. But the bottom line is that uh, we both represent uh, states that have a lot of farmers, small business people, you know, and, um, and so we work together on those issues. You don't have to agree on everything to agree on something. So part of the challenge the kind of building coalitions is to finding out that's something we all agree on. And uh, on the, in the case of the, the Tibetan cause, I mean, there, there's great love and admiration for His Holiness the Dalai Lama, uh, but there's also an appreciation that the Chinese government right now is trying to erase the Tibetan culture. Uh, and that would be tragic if that were to happen. And um, and try to figure out how you know how, how you respond to that, and uh, there's you know and we've come we've come up with a way. This you met the the, the Tibet Reciprocal Act bill, which basically say says is that we will, you know, we will treat China the way they treat us when it comes to Tibet. If they de if they deny me or you or journalists access to Tibet then we reserve the right to restrict where Chinese government officials travel to. Uh, you know, we also very much believe that people have a right to self-determination. So the Chinese government is saying when the Dalai Lama dies, we, the Chinese government, will determine who the next Dalai Lama is. You know, I mean, which is absurd. Um, so what we're, we're saying is that, no, we're going to, you know, we, we are going to respect the wishes of the Tibetan diaspora, of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and we're not going to acknowledge who the Chinese government decides to appoint. But again, I mean, I think, you know, the, the key here is that a lot of grassroots work has been done. Uh, and, um, and, and not only identifying the, the, the general issue, but in helping people find the commonality where people feel comfortable, where liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats actually feel comfortable saying, we all believe that this is the right approach uh, to deal with, uh, you know, with the, with the Tibetan crisis. So I think there's a lot to be learned from that. 
in in the case of Department of Peace Building, we've we found. I mean, definitely, there's some commonality across the board about uh, violence reduction. Um, but uh, most Republicans say to us, we won't spend a dime on anything more on any federal government. Right. So here, so we, we live in a country where, if, you know, starting at the earliest ages, our education system celebrates our generals and our military uh, campaigns and our military victories. I mean, that's, that is kind of embedded in, in our educational system. We don't spend as, nearly as much time celebrating the peace builders, learning about Gandhi, learning about Martin Luther King, not just that he's a holiday, right? But, you know, how he, uh, how he moved this country, how he pushed the civil rights movement forward in a nonviolent way. And I think, you know, we, 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 at the local level, we, we have to start urging our school boards to make sure that our kids learn about not just those who can make who made war, but those who actually made peace, those who resolve conflicts non-violently. Non mm -hmm. I don't know, and and to me that's a, you know you know you know when people say oh the, the you know nonviolence is somehow a weakness. No, nonviolence is a strength. Violence is a weakness. When we you know resort to violent responses, that's a sign that everything else has failed that, um, you know, resolving conflicts in a, in a peaceful way or, 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 or engaging in constructive communications has failed. So, you know, you know, we have been raised into believing that some of the biggest supporters of violence are our heroes, um, but we haven't learned very much about the peace builders. And um, so some of the work is at the local level, but, um, but look, I mean, a, a Department of Peace building, when all is said and done, um, is going to cost us way, 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 may le way less than what we spend on our military budget on an annual basis. Um, and if we can save lives and if we can prevent war and build coalitions, well, you know, it's, it's worth it because war is expensive. Um, you know, uh, not just waging war, but the aftermath of war is expensive as well. Yes, Jack, uh, Jack, you have a question? Sure. Um, I'm new to this group, so um, you know, hope to be, you know, participate and help you on your efforts. Um, has the Biden administration expressed any support for uh, the proposed department? Or has it been pretty neutral in terms of um, any position? Yeah, so I haven't heard them express support or opposition. Um, I think if we could get them something, I, I, I would like to think that the president would sign it. Um, but the challenge, obviously, is getting it through Congress, the House, and the Senate. Uh, but in the meantime, I mean, this is an education tool. This is a, this is a, a, a this is a, a way to engage members of Congress you know, on this issue, issue of peace building. I just came back from Columbia, as I mentioned um, in my remarks. And I was, in, you know, and I hadn't been there since 2017 when the peace accords were, were signed. And I was hoping that things would be, you know, uplifting during my visit. It was the opposite, quite frankly. Uh, the government is walking away from the peace agreement. The United States is not pushing them enough implement the peace agreements um, and violence is on the rise and uh, not just by illegal uh, armed groups, but by the state, by the security forces. So, you know, um, I think, you know, we need to lead by example. And uh, I chair the, I co-chair the human rights commission. And I believe the United States stands for anything. We ought to stand out loud and four square for human rights. Uh, and that means that we ought to condemn violence wherever it may occur, whether it's in Colombia, whether it's in China, whether it's in Saudi Arabia, or whether it's in the United States. Um, you know, violence is awful. Um, and, uh, you know, and I would like to think we could build a consensus around that. 
Um, but we have some members of Congress that somehow think that our ability to, to wage violence, to be able to inflict violence, shows that we're tough, shows that we mean business, shows that we're serious. Uh, and, um, and those people don't know their history. And uh, this is an opportunity to teach them a little bit of history. This is Pat. I find that I'm unmuted. Yes. <laughs> and I just want to say that we can use the Department of Peacebuilding legislation as an evolutionary opportunity to change the patriarchal culture to one of partnership. I agree with Pat, uh, you know, um, who is always on the right side of history. <laughs> so I appreciate that. No, you're right. This is, you know, I always tell people, this is not just about moving legislation forward. This is an opportunity to educate members of Congress and their staffs. And this is to help move them on other issues as well uh, with regard to peace building. Thank, thank you, Pat. Somebody has their hand raised. Who is that? It's a 917. This is uh, Jenna. Jenna. I couldn't, I couldn't connect on Zoom, so I'm here. Okay. Did you have a question? I have a question. Yeah, I actually heard from uh, Representative Smith, and I missed the email, and I just found it. So I'm really happy that he's oh. going to meet with us. <laughs> that's, that's the good news. And, which, which, um, which, which Representative Smith from where are you Chris from? Chris Smith, your, your oh, friend and ally in bipartisan human yeah, rights. Okay. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah, and and Congressman Meeks is my. I'm a constituent of Congressman Gregory Meeks. Okay. And he doesn't respond to my repeated requests for um, a meeting. Uh, do you have any advice? Yeah, you know what? I mean, um, you might want to reach out to my office, and we can reach out to his office. But look, you know, here here's the deal: we all work for you. You don't work for us. Um, and even if, even if, you know, I may disagree with somebody who wants a meeting with me, um, you know, that, that's, you know, that, that's the nature of, you know, the, the diversity of opinion in our country. But when but members of Congress, you know, especially constituents um, have a right to meet with a member of Congress and, uh, and have a conversation. I mean, I, I'm not sure where where he may be on these issues, but um but you know, maybe something got lost in translation, but we're happy to, if you reach out to my office and we can maybe follow up in, with Greg Meeks's office and make sure that they know of your request and hopefully that somebody there, if not him, but somebody will meet with you. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks, Biscuit. And I really appreciate what you said about Tibet. I support Tibet and thank you for your support for Tibet. Thank you. Thank you. I think, I think Nancy, Dee, there's a question in chat too. Yeah. So I think Dee had a question and then Donald Smith also has a question. Okay. Oh, and then, and then after that, Sally Ellis Thompson. So maybe Dee, you want to go first? Sure. Hi, Congressman McGovern. Thanks for being with us. Um, and, you know, I was appreciating what you were saying about how, and, and I think, Many of us have talked ad nauseum about how uh, Department of Peace Building would cost a fraction of what it costs to um, to continue to support and wage violence. Um, but I think, and I wanted to get your take on this. That I feel like, you know, the military-industrial complex is a thing, and there's a lot of money to be made in war and violence and the perpetuation of of both of those things um, abroad and domestically. And so I'm curious if when you talk with other representatives and you're having conversations about this particular um, legislation and, and legislations that are around this, um, is that ever, you know, the conversation that how do we, how do we um, make it as important how do we step away from the amount of money that can be made uh, from raging war and supporting violence? So it's complicated, right? Um, one of the things we need to do is we need to figure out a way to get campaign finance reform where we take the money out of politics because there are a lot of people who vote for 
you know, increase military budgets because if you follow the money, you look at their FEC reports, they get lots of money from defense contractors. So let's eliminate that pressure and let's try to figure out a way to, you know, do campaign finance reform. Secondly, we all need to re- redefine the terms of the debate. You know, when we talk about national security, which we all support, we all want to be secure. Um, it's always about how many bombs we have. It's always about how many troops we have. It's always about how big our military budget is. Well, I want a new definition of national security. And we ought to be talking about a new definition of national security that includes, you know, things like jobs, economic security, housing, making sure people have enough to eat, the purity of our environment, um, you know, the cleanliness of our air and our water. Um, You know, it ought to include, you know, um, the things that everyday people worry about. You know, when I, you know, talk to my constituents, they're not losing sleep at night wondering whether Osama bin Laden's second cousin is going to knock, knock down their front door and attack them. They're worried about whether they're going to be able to put food on the table, whether or not they're still going to have a job. Um, they're worried about the climate crisis, which, by the way, is impacting every aspect of our economy and our country. So, so we, 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 we need to start redefining the terms of the debate. So, yeah, I want to have a debate on national security. But when I talk about national security, it's not just the number of bombs we have. It includes a whole bunch of other things. And we ought to broaden that definition. And, um, and, and I think, you know, we ought to define the terms of the debate and not always be responding to what this, you know, the establishment says, you know, this is what we mean by national security. So I, I think there's opportunities here. And, um, you know, there are, you know, one of the and you probably noticed this as well. Um, th- there's a new generation um, kind of rising up in this country who are very impatient, you know, who can't believe that we've neglected the climate crisis for so long, you know, who, who feel it's totally unacceptable that we live in a country, the richest country in the world, where 40 million people are hungry. Or, you know, say, I, I'm not going to tolerate any more jobs that pay wages that are so lousy that I need to be on SNAP in order to put food on the table. And I think the impatience of this kind of new generation coupled with all the energy on, on this call and like-minded people across the country, this is an opportunity, you know, to push and to get real change and to redefine the terms of the debate. But if we debate on their terms, we lose. I mean, we lose. Uh, we need. We need to. We need to reclaim the national security mantle, but define it on our terms. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Donald Smith had a question. Yes. Um. You, you started earlier talking about uh, the bipartisan bill about Tibet. Um, I, I don't like you know, how China treats um, some of the minor- its minorities and what it did to Hong Kong, but right now the U.S. is pivoting from you know, the war and terror to preparing for war with China and Russia. And war with China looks actually possible and maybe even likely. Um, you know, and so the U.S. is very uh, um, selective about which oppressive countries it criticizes. I mean, you know, if it, it, it it, we finished having the enemy. First, it was like Vietnam, then Iraq and Afghanistan. They're all disasters, wasted $6 trillion. Now they're picking on China, you know, which is technologically advanced in four times our population. And we're doing it in their backyard. That is like the stupidest thing I've, I can imagine. So I want you to comment on, you know, how we can stop war with China and whether it's worth, you know, f- fighting China. It's, it's sort of, we, we can't be the world policemen. Right. And we are, you are absolutely right that we are inconsistent and we are selective in our outrage. Um, I was just in Colombia where um, there, were, there were riots uh, over hunger and joblessness and the police uh, responded by shooting innocent people uh, and the government cut the internet. Now you compare that on how we reacted to Cuba when they cracked down on their protests and cut the internet. I mean, we... we, we in Colombia, we're like, oh, they're our allies, but Cuba, we get really tough on. 
No, I get that. We ourselves have a uh, a human rights record that is uh, mixed. You know, I mean, we 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 are, you know, I mean, we are a country that is uh, based that we that has that is not has has been built on a on a genocide of uh, you know our indigenous populations. We're a country that embraced slavery. We're a country where there's still this great um, inequity uh, based on the color of your skin. So I get all that. But here's the challenge that we all have. And this is, and you know, I do not want a war with China. I don't want, I don't want a military confrontation with China or anybody else. All right. And um, I don't want another cold war or hot war or any war, period. But I co-chair the Human Rights Commission too. Um, and China is, is, is guilty right now of some pretty awful things, not just the crackdown on, on activists in Hong Kong. A lot of my, a lot of people I met in Hong Kong, young, young people, well, all they wanted was for China to keep its word that, you know, there'd be one country and two systems. Um, those people are in jail now. I can't even get a hold of them. Um, on Tibet, they're engaged in ethnic cleansing. I was one of the last members of Congress allowed to go to Tibet, and I saw what they were doing. I mean, they're wiping out a culture. It's just wrong. And with the Uyghurs, there's a genocide going on. I mean, there just is. And so, you know, when I talk, when I think about peace, you can't, I mean, peace is not just a, a diminished military budget or, or a, 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 a state where we're not shooting at each other. I mean, for a lot of people, you know, not being able to practice your religion or your culture, your tradition, and being jailed for that, well, that's not peace. Um, being put in forced labor camps, that's not peace. So we have to find, we have to kind of thread this needle here. I mean, that how do we, how do we, despite our own shortcomings, and by the way, I'm, I'm also advocating that we, we fight for peace and justice in our own country as, you know, with as much passion as, you know, we need to do around the world. But how do we, how do we make clear to China, like, we want to, we want a relationship with you. We want to cooperate on the climate crisis. We understand you're an economic power. So are we, we want to continue our economic relationship. Um, we want to, there's lots of areas we can, can cooperate on. We want to decrease tensions around the world, but don't ask us and nobody should ever be silent when people are being persecuted. I don't care where it is in the world, whether it's in a jail in the United States or whether it's halfway around the world, you know, in a labor camp uh, with Uyghurs in, in China. And so, you know, I, I think it, there's this false choice that is being put out there that, you know, we can't, we can't raise our voices against genocide or against the crackdown on um, activists in Hong Kong or about ethnic cleansing in Tibet, you know, because if we if we raise our voices on that, then we're pushing for war. No, the, you, you, we can raise those issues and still find ways to avoid a military confrontation because peace without justice, peace, peace without respect for human rights, that's not peace. Maybe peace to some of us sitting on being on this call, but it's not peace to the people who are being persecuted. And so, uh, you know, I, I've always felt that if the United States stands for anything, we need to stand out loud and four square for human rights, despite all of our history, despite all of our inconsistencies and selectivity, we need to demand that our government be less selective and more consistent, but we, 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 we can't turn our backs uh, on, the, on the struggle for human rights. I mean, it, I, I forget who brought up the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the beginning here. I, I believe in it. I think Eleanor Roosevelt's vision was right. I, mean, I want to live in a world where everybody can be who they are. I mean, period. Uh, and I'm not saying that that means I'm going to impose my views on you or you're going to impose your, your views on me. Um, but, um, you know, I've met with His Holiness the Dalai Lama on a number of occasions. Again, I, I visited Tibet where he's not allowed to go. Um, and, um, and so, um, you know, we got to figure out a way to do both, to avoid war, but also to be a, to, to uplift the cause of human rights, uh, 
here in this country and around the world. Thank, thank you. Um, Sally Ellis, you had a question, I think. You have to unmute yourself. Yes. Uh, what would be the role of a Department of Peace in overcoming the double standard by which we're living? Well, that's a good question. I mean, hopefully, if it was if it was being um, if if the department operated as we would all like it to be, um, uh, one of the things I would like to I, I would I would like to think it would do is teach us the skills to be peace builders. I mean, again, I mean, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I mean, my kids went through a, the public school system and, um, you know, there's lots of stuff in the history books about the generals. And I'm not saying you don't learn about the generals. I mean, there's some important generals to learn about, but it's kind of disproportionately tilted um, in that direction and, and with very little attention given to how do you avoid conflict without shooting a gun or dropping a bomb? Uh, I would like to think we would have a, a, a department that would be focused in on conflict resolution on how to build uh, dialogue and relationships between very diverse and sometimes at odds groups so that we can get to agreement without using force, or without using violence. Look, you know, you read the history books on, I mean, I'll give you an example. This is, uh, I remember um, reading Robert McNamara's kind of book on Vietnam. I don't know how many of you read that book. One of the things that stunned me and angered me about that book uh, was when he said that um, the people who kind of were the architects of our Vietnam policy knew nothing about Vietnam. They didn't know about the history. They didn't know about the hopes, dreams, or aspirations of the Vietnamese people. They knew nothing about the struggle that Ho Chi Minh led. They didn't know very much about the geography of the country. And we kind of st stumbled into this conflict um, without knowing much about anything that, quite frankly, was relevant that we should have known about. And I would say that we did the same thing in Iraq. I remember when we were uh, when George Bush was thinking about going to Iraq. Donald Rumsfeld was at a briefing, and I asked him, you know, not only you know where's the proof of the weapons of mass destruction, but the question was, is Iraq the way it is today because of Saddam Hussein, or is Saddam Hussein the way he is today because of Iraq? And he said, well, that's kind of a dumb question. Well, I didn't think it was a dumb question. I wouldn't have asked it if I thought it was a dumb question. I asked it because. You know, I was thinking of Robert McNamara's, um, uh, you know, book on, on Vietnam. And the fact is that do we understand, like, what the realities are in Iraq, what the, where the people are, the, the, the ethnic divisions, the geography, all, all that kind of stuff. Bottom line is we didn't. we didn't. We didn't do our homework on Afghanistan. So a Department of Peace, I would like to think, would help us, you know, kind of look at things from a different lens and put things in a different perspective. I was a history major in college. I'm not a PhD, but I was a history major in college. And I always tell people I was a great focus for education. One is it helped me with my reading and comprehension skills. But two, I think everybody should have a sense of history. I wish more of my colleagues had a sense of history. Um, I, you know, we, we debate issues in which it is clear that my colleagues have no idea what happened not only five years ago or 10 years ago, but two years ago. I mean, there's just no sense of history. And we have to figure out a way to remedy that because history is a guide to how we should proceed in the future. Oh, I so agree with you about history. Um, Geraldine, would you, would you like to ask your question? Yes, I have a two-part question. Thank you for being uh, being with us. Uh, I really, really love the fact that you've taken out part of your time uh, to do this. Uh, first of all, I wanted to ask you about the filibuster and doing my research. 
I discovered that the gentleman that instigated this was a white supremacist, mm -hmm. and it actually was implemented to suppress the African American uh, community. So to me, it's uh, racist right. roots right. and and needs to go talk about your history and uh, just exactly what we could do, you know, to help to to eliminate that so progress can be made with everything that's been approved by the House that is now sitting in the Senate and not moving because they have that at their fingertips. Secondly, I would love if you would expand more on your bill uh, uh, 5410. I noticed that Barbara Lee and Ted Liu, who's in my neck of the woods, are both co-sponsors of this. And uh, it's of the short title, the National Security Reforms and Accountability Act. It seems like it covers a lot, a lot of reforms in different areas. So if you could uh, maybe enlighten us a little bit more on that, and uh, we could get on board with uh, helping you uh, doing, you know, on for uh, our support for it. Well, first, your analysis of the filibuster is correct. All right. Um, you know, secondly, um, the way we change that is we have to elect more like-minded people. Uh, you know, we need to be able to have, you know, 51 votes to change it. And, um, and we don't have that right now. We have two Democrats that say they don't want, they don't want to change it. And so then the question comes down, can we work with those two Democrats to say, okay, well, can you, can you at least agree that we should not allow voting rights to be filibustered? I mean, I think that would be an important positive step in the right direction. We're not quite there. But look, it all comes down to votes. We either have the votes or we don't have the votes. Right now, we don't have the votes. And the filibuster is, um, you know, is a destructive tool that is basically used to block everything. And, um, and look, um, as a result, we're not, I mean, we're, I'm, before I came here, I was at a meeting where trying to figure out how do we get these two the human infrastructure bill and the physical infrastructure bill passed, you know, so we could actually invest in people and do things that are transformational. We have the votes in the House. Uh, we're missing two votes in the Senate. How do we get to passing these reconcili this reconciliation bill? And um, it's frustrating that we, we're even having this debate right now um, because, you know, I would like to think all of us believe that people have been underinvested in over the years and that, you know, when people say 3.5 trillion is a lot of money, well, yeah, it is a lot of money. That's over 10 years. We, we spend, we spend what, seven to $800 billion a year on a military budget mm -hmm. add, add that up over 10 years. So, I mean, I mean, put, let's put these things in perspective. And by the way, we shouldn't be talking about numbers. We should be talking about programs and policies and people. I mean, things that will make a real a real difference. And on the bill that you, the HR fifty four ten bill, look, um, one of the things that has really been frustrating to me is that Congress passes these authorizations of the use of military force, whether it's Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever, and then then we then they walk away, and we have this authorization that goes on forever, and then it's not just about Iraq and Afghanistan different presidents use those AUMFs to justify, you know, um, military interventions in other countries. And what this bill would basically say is, okay, you pass an AUMF, all right, it has to be sunsetted. So Congress, you know what, you're not off the hook. You vote for it, and then in a couple of years, if, you, if, if, if it passes in a couple of years, you have to revisit it, you have to debate it, you have to vote on it again. And as uncomfortable as it is for some to want to go on record as yes or no on issues of the war and peace, you have to. I get it. We have a lot of people who don't want to vote. If you don't want to vote, then go into another business, right? I mean, in Congress, you're supposed to vote. So, but being but on issues of war and peace, I mean, we we, we the 2001 AUMF. I mean, I mean, it's 2021. I mean, all these years we've never revisited the issue. And as a result, we never have thoughtful debates on Afghanistan. We didn't have thoughtful debates on Iraq. And so we, we get war that goes on automatic pilot. So this says, no, we have to sunset it. 
It also has controls over when presidents declare national emergencies. Again, we, we have to have regular debates. You can't declare a national emergency in 1950 that is still in effect in the year 2021. On arms sales, the same thing. Um, you know, we ought to have debates. Congress needs to be involved. Our founders believe that Congress should, should play a bigger role in these issues. Uh, and then we should have regular debates. We've moved away from that. And I think we've moved away from it for two reasons, political expediency, and we got a lot of cowards in Congress. It's easier for me to go home and to tell you, you know, oh, you know, I mean, we never voted on this, but I'm, I'm all for this. Or if it goes bad, oh, we never voted on this, but I'm all against this. If I could, you know, so people get to play it both ways. And I'm, you know, look, at I love my colleagues. Um, and, but when it comes to war and peace, when it comes to things like arms sales and national emergencies, we have to revisit how we've been doing things because business as usual means that we do things 10, 20 years ago and they just continue. And we all throw up our hands and say, there's nothing we can do about it. So this would actually institute, institute you know, checks and balances and accountability. And so I, um, so look, you know, uh, this is something we've been talking about. You know, the, the way the bills are written, the Senate has a bill. I think our bill in the House is a little bit better. Not that none of them are perfect, but we're trying to work in a bipartisan way because, look, given the ratios we have in the House and the Senate, we need to have bipartisan support to get anything done. But anything that could bring more accountability to how we declare war, I think would be welcome. Uh, I know we've kept you longer than we said, but this is so, it's so nice to be able to have a one-on-one -on -one discussion with a member of Congress. It's hard, it's hard to reach Congress these days, especially with COVID. Um, I had two things and then we'll let you go. Um, first of all, what was your experience on Insurrection Day and uh, how that's shaped what you do? And what gives you hope for the future? So on uh, Insurrection Day, um, I was in the chamber um, and Nancy Pelosi um, had been called away and she asked me if I could take over uh, in the chair. And so I did, which I've done a hundred times before. Uh, she said to me, she'll be right back. In fact, she left her phone there. Uh, but what she didn't know is that when she left, she was going to be, she was whisked away to a safe location. Um, and I didn't know it. And I, she didn't know, know at the time that that was going to happen. So I was the, the, I was presiding over the proceedings on that day. And I was the last person to leave the house floor. I had to oversee the evacuation. And when, um, and when I left the house floor and walked into the speaker's um, lobby, um, uh, there was a backlog of members trying to get out to, go, to, to escape to a safe location that security had uh, established for us. And I maybe was about 20 feet from a door that was glass from midway up. And I saw this mob um, smashing um, the windows. And, um, um, and I, um, if you ask me uh, what hate looks like, I would tell you it was what I saw in the eyes of those people who literally broke the glass in front of me. This is when the woman was shot. Uh, these cowards that were breaking the glass, none of them went through the, the window uh, first. They took a woman who was in the, in the back and pushed her through the window and she was shot. And so, um, um, so look, I mean, I mean, I'll never forget it. And I um, am, um, uh, you know, I do, everybody deals with things differently. I tried to put bad things behind me, but I will tell you it is very difficult and very frustrating to work in Congress where I have colleagues who tell me that nothing happened that day when I was um, there and I was, um, I saw what I saw. Um, in fact, tonight, I mean, on, uh, there's a, uh, an HBO documentary at nine o'clock tonight, apparently, uh, that they're going to show uh, about, um, that they did about, about, about that night. 
but I um, you know, but I uh, yeah, I I you know, I it's it's it, it is a difficult um, yeah. I mean, I, I guess what I never thought was that a mob could get into the Capitol um, is the way they, they did. I, I never, you know, I was at a, I was at a, a UMass Amherst event a couple of weeks ago and a college, one of the student questions was like, what's similar when you were in college and what we're in college in terms of activism? I said, when I was in college, I was, you know, we were fighting about nuclear disarmament. We were fighting to end apartheid in South Africa. We were fighting against illegal wars in Central America. I said, but you know what I never thought about when I was in college? I never thought about the need to fight to protect our democratic institutions. I never thought of that, you know, that I had a fight to protect the freedom of the press, or I, I had a fight to protect people's right to, to you know, to basically determine uh, an election. And um, I now worry that we are, we are moving, we, we potentially can move toward an autocracy. Um, and, um, and, you know, so there are things I worry about now that keep me up at night that I never worried about before because of what happened that day. But here's what gives me hope. What gives me hope, I mean, we're having this call, right? I mean, you, you're all like, we want to make things better. And you're on a call and we're planning and plotting and figuring out, how, you know, who we have to push. And, you know, what gives me hope is when I go, you know, when I see young people, you know, holding signs saying, do something about the climate crisis. Um, and I, and I, and I just, I believe in the goodness of the American people. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, that will prevail. So if, um, so I'm, 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 I'm concerned, I'm frightened, um, and I'll be honest with you, I'm a little pissed at what happened, <laughs> but, you know, I remain hopeful. Uh, if I didn't, I, I would be retiring to a desert island and picking coconuts for the rest of my life, but, um, but I, I, I believe that there's a way forward here, so, but I thank you for having me on the call. We're, we're all really glad you're not picking coconuts um, <laughs> and appreciate all the work that you're doing and all, all your um, all that you've shared with us. Um, I want to turn it over to Dave as our representative from Massachusetts to give a sort of a final thank you. And you have a quote too, Dave, or no? Yes. If, if you don't, yes. Yes. The answer is yes, you do, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so I do have one question, one final question, uh, Congressman. What can we do for you to help you with your objectives? Well, I, I, think, I think you're already doing it. Um, I just, I, I, I don't want you to get weary and I don't want you to give up uh, to, to, to lose hope. And I, I want you to know that if there was ever a moment to fight like hell, it is now. I mean, in all my life, I've never felt that this, that I've never encountered a moment that was more urgent, you know, uh, and demanded more political activism and focus than right now. And I think we all have an obligation to not only do the lobbying that we normally do, but within our communities to make sure that people who are around us, our families or people we meet in coffee shops, understand the truth and understand what's at stake. Um, you know, I, I used to, I used to have, I, when people would say things to me in the past that were over the top, I would just kind of thank you very much and walk away. No longer. I mean, at family functions, at Dunkin' Donuts or wherever I am, when people say things that I know are wrong or destructive or hurtful, I now confront them. It's not comfortable, but I feel that we have to do that. Um, because if not, you know, then misinformation carries the day. So, we just have to figure out ways to step it up, not only on the national level, but also within our communities. Because really, you know, I mean, what happens in those coffee shops is it relates to what happens in Washington. Uh, and so the local is every bit as important as the national. 
but in any event, I am um, grateful to all of you. You know, John Lewis, my friend John Lewis, you know, would, would say if he were on this call, would call you all a bunch of troublemakers. And I am so happy to be with all of you troublemakers today and just keep it up. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much. Trouble. So the so the quote actually the um, Pat Simon had found a, something that I wrote in 2004, and she asked if I would share that as the quote, and that is that patriarchal structures create poverty, oppression, and human suffering. The common denominator underlying all these conditions is the need to maintain domination or control with fear as its corollary. Fight to get, fight to keep power over others, whether it be over women, men, countries, or the earth's resources. Thank you, Dick. Karen, any last words of wisdom? <laughs> Uh, just we a lot in this call. I'm going to listen to it again. I encourage other people to do so and to share your experience. And and uh, the link will be up on the website within a day or so. And uh, I'm inspired. And let's get to work. Is it possible to say and Pat and Nancy for arranging for Congressman McGovern to be on the call? Yes. Go ahead, Nancy. Is it possible? to for you to save the video um yes edition of this okay all right yeah all right. i'm um, gonna stop the recording now thank you everyone for participating great questions